What's up, guys? Snowstorm is about to hit where I live. It's going to be crazy. Church was canceled tonight. So I locked myself in today, and I'm doing a special episode on Melchizedek, King of Salem, Priest of the Most High God. We are pulling from Genesis chapter 14, Psalms 110, and Hebrews chapter 7. Look, guys, I'm no theologian. I have no degree in biblical studies or anything like that. So I'm sure for all you theologians that are going to listen to this episode, I'm sorry for whatever I get wrong. But I just wanted to pull from a paper that I wrote for school about Melchizedek. Was he a theophany? Was he a Christophany? Was he a real king, a priest? And just kind of digging into that. I know a lot of guys have done studies on this, have come to their own conclusions, but this is mine. And so if deep theology isn't your thing, this episode probably isn't for you. But I would love for you to tune in and listen anyway, just to feed your brain and uh, get your brain cells moving. So um, get your Bible ready, because we're going to be talking about Melchizedek. There has been much debate in Christendom whether Melchizedek or Melchizedek or however you want to pronounce it, um, whether he was merely a theophany, an angel, or he was actually a legitimate priest in ancient days. We see Melchizedek, he is the king of Salem, he is priest of the Most High God, he lives in Abraham's time, and uh, you know some even say that he was a Christophany or he was a... Um, appearance of Christ um, manifested in the Old Testament. But there's only three points in the Bible that even mention the word Melchizedek, and those three points we see are in Genesis, Psalms, and Hebrews, specifically Genesis 14, 18 through 20, Psalms 110, 4, and Hebrews 7. Um, but these three points in Scripture, um, they tie together really an argument as to whether Melchizedek was merely a theophany, an angel, or he was a legitimate priest. Um, in fact, even if he was some pre-existing manifestation of Jesus Christ. Um, but really in this episode, I just seek to um, give a proper interpretation of the book of Hebrews chapter 7 and the character of Melchizedek. Um, historically, I don't believe Melchizedek uh, was a Christophany or a theophany. Um, but he was a legitimate priest. Um, I don't think he could have been a theophany or an angel uh, theologically. That wouldn't make sense. And exegetically, you know, in Scripture, it doesn't really, you know, seem to be a manifestation of Christ before Christ. But he did serve, um, and I'll show this here in this episode, he was a type of Christ. And I think that was the, his entire role um, un unknown to him at the time. But really, the background of the book of Hebrews is going to provide context, um, really, to the verses that support that view and different interpretations of basically fundamental principles from those verses. So the actual argument will undoubtedly be whether the biblical um, and actually historical character of Melchizedek was a legitimate priest in time or just a theophany used by the writer of Hebrews to strengthen his message. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, we'll go read Hebrews 7 and Genesis. So in reading the book of Hebrews, one will quickly come across a chapter that speaks of this man named Melchizedek. And it is this man that serves as a typology, a symbol of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. However, some take that typology to claim that Melchizedek was merely an angel, a theophany, or a Christophany found in the book of Genesis. It's incredibly evident from the book's content that the author of Hebrews is extremely knowledgeable in the law, which is the Old Testament. 
a lot of people have speculated who the author could be, whether it's Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, Luke, Clement of Rome, Silas, Silvanus, Philip, Priscilla. But according to uh, Nathaniel Wilson, Paul is the primary candidate because several of the concepts in the book of Hebrews closely resemble other writings of Paul. Portions in the book of Hebrews concerning justification and sanctification or soteriology match very well with Pauline authorship. Um, on the other hand, uh, some have even suggested Paul's close friend Barnabas. And uh, the quote's over, by the way. It's kind of over like 10 seconds ago. But on the other hand, some have even suggested Paul's close friend Barnabas wrote it. Barnabas is known to be from the city of Cyprus and seems to have much relation with Alexandrian Hellenistic thought. And in many places, Barnabas was described as the son of consolation, um, while the book of Hebrews is described as a word of encouragement. So no matter who the original author was, it's abundantly clear that the author had a message to preach, and that is the supremacy and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Hebrews opens up by saying, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. So in that opening um, of the book of Hebrews, we see the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus as the glorified human Son and God who made the worlds. According to Philip Edgumby Hughes, the com comprehensive theme of the epistle to the Hebrews is that of absolute supremacy of Christ, a supremacy which allows no challenge, whether from human or angelic beings. Simply put, the theme of Hebrews is the identity and incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's full revelation to humanity, and he is above the prophets, he is above the angels, He's above Moses and the priesthood itself. Another theme in the book of Hebrews is Jesus as high priest. It is important to note that in the Old Testament, the high priest was basically portrayed as God before the people of Israel. However, we see that Jesus Christ is the ultimate high priest in the New Testament. Throughout the entire message of Hebrews, the writer goes to the farthest extent to prove the deity of Christ and his priesthood. This strong emphasis on the incarnation of Jesus Christ serves its pur purpose to exegete the passage concerning Melchizedek appropriately. So the book of Hebrews was written to a Jewish Christian audience under a significant amount of persecution by both Roman and Jews. Surrounding Jews had struck down the priesthood of Jesus. To a Jew, and you know, especially a Jewish priest, the atonement of Jesus Christ was the most distasteful thing in Christianity. So the author attempted to reassure the remaining believers that Jesus Christ was the high priest and that the atonement did not take away anything from the Jewish religion. You know, sure, the author could have addressed every argument within the message, like peculiar principles and ways of thinking, but it was of utmost importance to reassure them of Christ's position. The author writes Hebrews much like a sermon than an epistle and characterizes his works as a word of exhortation. You know, in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 24, it starts by saying they of Italy. You know, that could indicate that the author was writing to Rome and including greetings from Italians living away from their home. According to Dr. Jeremy Painter, 
a professor I had at Urshan, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 24 could be understood to mean either that he was with the people who were from Italy at the time of the writing, or it could mean that he was writing from Italy. Another proposition is that the author was writing to another group of Jewish Christians in Corinth or in um, Colossia. Nevertheless, the message is still the same. The supremacy and incarnation of Jesus Christ. So the message of the book of Hebrews, the supremacy and incarnation of Jesus Christ. And I'm driving this home because this is going to help to prop up the um, argument for why Melchizedek was a legitimate priest. So according to um, the superintendent of the UPC, David Bernard, the incarnation is the embodiment of a spirit in a human form, specifically the act of God in becoming flesh. That is the union of divinity and humanity and Jesus Christ, end quote. Jesus Christ is God's ultimate and final self-revelation to the world. The name of Jesus is the Greek equivalent of Joshua or Jeshua, which means salvation. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 8, it shows us this by saying, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. End quote. So Jesus is Jehovah in salvation, or the God of the Old Testament in the person of Jesus, or Jeshua Christ. Jesus was like any human being. He ate, he drank, he slept, he even got tired. But God's divine nature was manifested in him. Multiple verses in the law point us to this conclusion and should point all Jews to the atoning work of Christ. Considering the law, there are many instances of theophanies, a visible manifestation of God, but we do not recognize their instances as Christophanies, visible manifestations of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, according to the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is both the high priest and God, Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, 1. Uh, we see that there, that the author of Hebrews uses the Greek word for heir in Hebrews 1 and 2. In Messianic usage, um, as one who receives some sort of position by right of sonship. So I'm going to read that again. The author of Hebrews uses the Greek word for heir in Messianic usage as one who receives some sort of possession by right of sonship. So the term glory is used in Hebrews and conjunction with the word brightness alluding to light. The word glory could be defined as the word becoming flesh. So it seems that the author is trying to show us what John wrote in his gospel. It says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1 and 2. Jesus Christ is also said to be the apostle and high priest of our profession in Hebrews 3 and 1. This is important because, as stated previously, the high priest was God's messenger to the Jews at the time of Moses and the law. In this context, one could see the author's powerful language that makes the bold claim, Jesus Christ, the high priest, which is, that's paraphrased. This is proven by the surrounding verses where the writer alludes to Moses being faithful in all his house in Hebrews 3 and 2. However, Jesus Christ was counted worthy of more glory than Moses in Hebrews 3 and 3. So basically, Jesus Christ is Jehovah, he's high priest, salvation, God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and the King of Righteousness, as we see in Hebrews 7 and 1. So if we look at Genesis 14, we see this story of Abraham, war, and the King of Salem. And this is the first mention of Melchizedek in the Bible. And um, the first mention of him um, is an encounter between Abraham and Melchizedek in the 14th chapter of Genesis. Abraham had just returned from the war known as the Battle of the Kings. And Genesis chapter 14 speaks of these four kings from the east that had subjected the Canaan people by expecting them to pay taxes or a tribute. So long story short, these Canaanites didn't pay. So these four kings attacked the Canaanites' kings in turn, forcing them to pay homage. 
So eventually, these four kings of the east captured five different cities south of the Dead Sea. Lot, Abraham's nephew, was living in one of those cities. Lot and his family were taken into captivity, which led Abraham to attack the four kings of the east. Just go read the entire chapter. The Bible says Abraham armed his trained servants in Genesis 14 and 14, all 318 of them. Abraham conquers them, takes Lot and his family back with him, and takes some spoils. Uh, John H. Walton says, Abram caught up to the eastern army at the northern border of the land, Dan. Abram uses the strategy of nighttime ambush, which is attested in text as early as the Judges period in Egyptian as well as Hittite documents. When Abraham comes back, and that was end quote, when Abraham comes back, Melchizedek enters the scene as the king of Salem or Jerusalem. Okay, I'm going to read that again. When Abraham comes back, Melchizedek enters the scene as the king of Salem. S-A-L-E-M. The same last few letters of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and priest of the Most High God, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Um, we see the tetragrammaton there. So according to Funk and Wagnall's New World Encyclopedia, he gave Abraham bread and wine and in return received a tithe of Abraham's booty or spoils, which is so funny. Uh, okay. Anyway, by paying a tithe to the king of Salem, Abraham is acknowledging the status of Melchizedek. By paying a tithe to king, the king of Salem, Abraham is acknowledging the status of Melchizedek as the priest of God. So that, that encyclopedia just said he gave Abraham bread and wine and in return received a tithe of Abraham's spoils. You know, if this, if this guy wasn't a king, Abraham would have never given him tithes. So obviously this is a legitimate king. By paying a tithe to the king of Salem, Abraham is acknowledging the status of Melchizedek as the priest of God. Um, and you can read about that transaction, which is restated in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. So... The last place that Melchizedek is mentioned is in Psalms 110, which is actually a messianic prophecy. The book of Psalms is known um, as one of instruction and revelation. In the 110th chapter of Psalm, King David wrote what is known as a messianic psalm. Psalm 110 is directly quoted in 22 chapters of the New Testament. The first verse of Psalm 110 shows us the divinity and the humanity of the Incarnation. David writes, the Lord said unto my Lord. He writes that in Psalms 110.1. The Lord said unto my Lord. This verse is not showing us God speaking to himself, but speaks of the Messiah's humanity and divinity. In other words, the Lord, the Lord, which is Jehovah, our God of the Old Testament to David, said unto my Lord, which would be really Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as we know him. However, one of the most significant pieces of scripture in this psalm is verse 4, which states, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I will say with, you know, the Lord said unto my Lord, when it says my Lord, of course, David can't really speak of Jesus Christ because he wasn't manifested yet in that time period. But when he says, the Lord said unto my Lord, I believe that he is speaking, um, the writer is speaking of the lineage on which Jesus would come through. So just to clarify that. But going to Psalms 110.4, just a few verses later, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. 
thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this verse, of course, is speaking of Jesus Christ. The reason that the Messiah would be after the order, or as the um, JPS writes, Jewish Publication Society, it says the manner of Melchizedek. So the reason that the Messiah would be after the order of, or the manner of Melchizedek is just like, uh, is because just like Melchizedek, Jesus would be both king and priest. It's very simple to understand. So the reason that the Messiah would be after the manner of Melchizedek is because just like Melchizedek, well, Jesus would be both king and priest, which Melchizedek was. He was the priest of the Most High God, and he was also the king of Salem, or the king of S-A-L-A-M, Salem, Jerusalem, peace. So this makes Melchizedek a shadow of the king and priest to come, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The name Melchizedek itself can be divided into two words, Melchi, which means king, which means to rule our terrain, and Zedek, which means righteousness, which means to make right or to justify. So this, in essence, makes Melchizedek both king and priest. According to the Old Testament law, no one could be both king and priest. However, Melchizedek was before the law. The scriptures would prophesy that one day both priests and kings would become one in Jesus Christ. If we go to Hebrews chapter 7, we see the real Melchizedek is being displayed by the writer. Again, if you remember, the writer of Hebrews very knowledgeable in the law. We don't know who exactly wrote Hebrews, but whoever it is is knowledgeable in the law. And they bring these, um, these, they, these parallels from the Old Testament to that person's present reality of uh, you know, in the New Testament and are tying together in this, this beautiful story. Specifically, the one we're talking about is Melchizedek. And so um, we see, being abundantly evident through the previous findings, um, you, you can see that the you know, writer of Hebrews sees Jesus Christ as the high priest and Lord. So in an attempt to push um, that point even further to the Jewish Christian audience of that day, the writer of Hebrews speaks of Messiah in light of Levitical priesthood. He says in Hebrews 7 and 5, They that are the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. And, as I may say, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Hebrews 7, 9-10. So, the Levitical priesthood and the king of Israel came out of the loins of Melchizedek, who was both king and priest. Now again, this is an impossibility under the Jewish law, considering that kings and priests were kept separate. However, there was one to, one to come after the manner of Melchizedek, Psalm 110.4, who would be both king and priest, that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. As it is written in Matthew chapter 1, he was born after the line of David and not Levi, so, how could he both be king and priest? Well, just two chapters later, John the Baptist, who is of the Levitical priesthood, baptizes Jesus. In this way, passing the priesthood's mantle to the king of Israel. Note that in both Genesis and Hebrews, Melchizedek is known as the king of Salem. The root and meaning of the word Salem is peace, which can also be translated as Jerusalem. So, in other words, Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem. Um, James Gray writes that this man was also uh, Melech Salem, or King of Peace. This name in the Hebrew language signifies peace, and the apostles translating it proves it typical. Melchizedek, a righteous king, reigning over Salem, a peaceful city, 
being at the same time priest of the Most High God, was an excellent type of that high priest who reigns in righteousness over the peaceful city of our God. Melchizedek, an angel of God, we see um, that that the reason this argument, basically, that Melchizedek wasn't real is because there's an absence of a genealogy anywhere in the scripture. Um, and in this way, that's that they kind of claim he's a theophany or Christophany or he's, he's divine. But, you know, we see in other commentaries um, statements that say to Greek readers, uh, Craig S. Keener actually writes us that to Greek readers, to be without beginning or an end was was to be divine. So um, that was an argument by made by the uh, philosopher Thales. So to, to be without beginning or end was to be divine. So the writer of Hebrews states in light of Christ, he says, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning nor days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. He writes that in Hebrews 7.3, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning nor nor days nor end of life. So basically, I, I believe the writer was taking that common knowledge of what the Greeks, uh, how they read, and kind of taking Jesus Christ and saying, look, he was without father, he was without mother. That makes him divine in their eyes. So some take that to mean that somehow Melchizedek had no mother or father, which is completely untrue because, again, like I just stated, this writer was really alluding to Jesus Christ, not Melchizedek. Of course, Melchizedek had a father or mother, even though it wasn't stated in Genesis, like in forms of genealogy, like we see in, um, you know, some of those long um, genealogies, you know, at the beginning of Matthew or, you know, the Chronicles or whatever. You know, some take take this to mean that Melchizedek had no mother or father. But again, that's untrue. It takes the scripture completely out of context. You know, I just think that some things in scripture are best kept silent I, I, because they serve a greater purpose in the Bible story. And some of you may disagree with me on that. So really come to the conclusion of this Melchizedek, priest of the most high God, the king of Salem. He was a type of Messiah in Genesis chapter 14. OK, as he gave bread and wine to Abraham in the valley. So Jesus gave wine and bread to his disciples at the Last Supper. However, unlike Melchizedek, Jesus has a kingdom that will never end. In the words of Jance C. Jorgensen, Jesus' priesthood is perfect. The carefully chosen Greek word teleo is the final crescendo in the epistle's claims about the nature of Christ's priesthood. While the law made nothing perfect, Jesus brings all things to perfection, indeed to completion. Jesus is the perfect high priest. So my conclusion, guys, is that Melchizedek was not a theophany. He was not a Christophany. He was not an angel. He was not a fictitious character. But he was a real character, a real king, a real priest in Abraham's time to serve as a type of Christ. God bless you.